Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello and welcome to another Mindful You podcast. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jamie Beachy. Jamie serves as the assistant faculty for Naropa's Master of Divinity program. She has also worked as a chaplain, ACPE certified spiritual care educator, and ethics consultant in diverse contexts, including academic medical centers, trauma, hospitals, hospice, and palliative care settings. Jamie also serves as a therapist with the MAPS MDMA Assisted Therapy Studies site in Boulder. So welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to be here with you, David. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Just also to say, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I just wrapped up a podcast with Sarah Lewis, who is also a faculty member to the Psychedelic Assisted Therapy Certificate at Naropa. And it's also a program in which you are teaching in as well. And it just feels very like well-rounded to speak to both of you. With her, I spoke mostly about the program and what to expect. And with you, I get to talk about more of like what the program teaches and what you've learned. And I'm really just excited to jump into it. So Sounds good. So before we get started, what was your academic journey like? And how did you find yourself teaching at Naropa University? Well, let's see. I completed a master's degree in Berkeley, California at the Pacific School of Religion some years ago. So that was a master of divinity. And then I went into right into working as a chaplain as a young person. So I started working for hospice first and learned so much from the hospice patients there in mostly rural settings at that point and then have worked as a chaplain for many years. And just recently, I decided to complete my PhD in order to further explore, I guess, the field of chaplaincy and develop my theoretical sensibility. And so I completed that just a few years ago and am now find myself very fortunate to be teaching at Naropa University in the Master of Divinity program. Awesome. What's interesting is when I read your like profile, you seem to have taken many different directions in the space of healing and therapy and care. And with all these credentials, how is it that you define yourself? Because it's like a therapist, trauma setting, chaplaincy, assisted psychedelics. Like, where do you see yourself? What do you label yourself? Well, let's see. For today, at least in this moment, I would say, <laughs> I would say that chaplaincy has been the foundation for everything that I've been about professionally. So we work in, in varied settings, which is perhaps why I've moved around in, in a sense in different kinds of clinical contexts. So chaplains are trained to be you know, present to people in crisis and when there's distress and perhaps some emotional struggle and loss. And we sometimes bring in religious resources, but a lot of the time we're there just to be a stable, available, caring presence in the midst of crisis. I would say all of the contexts that I've worked in have had that quality about them, either have been death and dying contexts or places where 
people are suffering or looking for healing from past traumas or traumatic experiences as they're unfolding. And in the religious studies departments that I've also been a part of as, as an educator, as a professor, we explore really the spiritual and religious questions that come up in those moments when people are suffering or experiencing loss, the existential questions and the existential meaning that is a part of those journeys for people. And so those are the unifying, I guess, commitments for my professional life. And, you know, there's the whole story of my religious journey, which I can, I'm happy to share with you if you want to go in that direction. But most of us in chaplaincy have pretty interreligious commitments. Um, many of us do anyway, because we have so much interaction with people across traditions and we learn to appreciate a whole diversity of spiritual practices and traditions along the way. Interesting. So what I find very wild is the type of work you do, you're essentially like running towards trauma, willing to help. The amount of heart space to hold in such a interesting existential crisis setting, it feels kind of wild to me. And do you feel like this type of work is for certain people or, you know, it doesn't seem like everybody want to be there to hold space for a family that is going through a crisis or like a loved one. It's it's very hard for people to hold emotionally, but yet you're like basing your entire career off that. It certainly isn't for everyone. I'd say, I'd say that I agree with that for sure. But some of us, I think, are drawn to bringing care into those, into those moments, perhaps because we've been through things ourselves where we could have used support in a way that wasn't, wasn't there for us, or perhaps because we just have a particular skill set maybe that meets that need well. And Naropa is really unique in developing deep contemplative practices and a deep contemplative foundation for the work, which is really adding a lot of uh, benefit to the field because people do get burned out in chaplaincy sometimes, just as they do in the healthcare profession in general. And it does take a certain resilience and a certain depth of commitment to one's own well-being, you know, in order to be present in those situations. And so I'm really pleased to have have discovered um, Naropa as a place to really explore the deep contemplative foundations that can support that kind of presence with people as they're struggling. And there are so many beautiful things about, about this kind of work. There are so many gifts that come with those deep experiences that make it worthwhile overall, but it does take a real deep commitment to our own sense of belonging to the world and belonging to the earth in a good way and the capacity to be present without losing our own footing and our own sense of, of well-being when things are falling apart around us. So there's a gift in that, I think, because the work in and of itself is a spiritual practice. And then we can bring these other practices in to even strengthen that, that capacity Okay. Very interesting. So what I've also realized too is your path seems very unique. It seems very unique to you. And I'm curious, did you plan on that or was that, did it just happen? Did you take like a chaplaincy class when you're in college and you really liked it, felt connected and then you went on that path or did you connect it to something and then you took another class and it kind of pulled you this direction? Was it always a clear thought of where you wanted to end up or are you just here because of synchronicities or 
I think synchronicity is certainly a part of the story of why you and I are here, you know, speaking over video today in this time and place. <laughs> Hello, video. <laughs> in the Europa community. Mm -hmm. So I would say that, I well, I grew up in a very religious family, very Christian family that was really committed to Christian practice. And so I naturally went into a religious profession as a person in my 20s. And my mother worked in healthcare. She was a neonatal ICU nurse. And so I also had familiarity with healthcare and with, you know, that's a pretty crisis oriented context as well. And so it was probably a natural fit for me to go into chaplaincy. But over time, my religious identities really shifted quite a bit to more of a commitment to earth-based practice and healing, you know, the human relationship with the rest of the natural world and with the other than human world and healing some of the causes of climate change and environmental injustice and some of the problems that we're facing today, I think are really evident in healthcare. So through the years as a chaplain, I my religious commitment is certainly still there. I really appreciate Christianity and I identify very much with Christ and but I also am a understand myself as a Buddhist practitioner and then indigenous practice, learning from people who have an intelligence about how to be in relationship with the earth through reciprocity and through a right relationship. You know, that's a strong commitment of mine that, that I've developed over time. And that really connects with the psychedelic therapy work because psychedelics are such a beautiful gift for healing our traumas and our broken relationship with each other and with our communities and the earth if they're done in in a good way you know with an attention to ethics and the capacity to really you know just to know what you're doing with good training and safety and all of that and so chaplaincy started out as a very maybe narrow religious endeavor for me and it's expanded to include a lot more than it did at the beginning of of my professional journey. Wonderful. Yeah. And this kind of leads into my next question too. So today's topic is about psychedelics and chaplaincy and how they intertwine with each other. I guess to understand what is actually, you know, how we clarify this, my basic understanding of chaplaincy is someone who is affiliated with a religious or spiritual institution that performs worship services or holding space for people to seek higher authority in their lives. I sort of like define that, you know, I found a definition and kind of winged it, but in conjunction with psychedelics as the catalyst for the healing potential, I'm curious, how do you define chaplaincy? And then also how do you define psychedelic chaplaincy? Are they different or do they have similar parts? Like how does that work for you? And how does that work for the space in which you work in? So a lot of the uh, answer to that is really emerging, I would say, and I certainly don't speak for everyone, but I can share my, my perspective on that. So chaplaincy is really a bit broader than the definition you shared in certain ways. We are really there with people to explore questions of meaning and existential experience. So people who are approaching death or perhaps have lost a loved one or those moments where you know, the fabric of the world as we understand it is shifting and or changing, fraying, maybe coming apart in some ways. And 
So really supporting people in those moments and creating spaces where the natural intelligence that we all have, this natural healing capacity can arise and, you know, find, find its way toward, toward wholeness is what chaplains are are about. And sometimes that involves religious care, you know, thinking of a higher power or relating to, to God or a divinity or some sense of the source of life. But sometimes it, it's more about relationship to family or to work or to community or adjusting to illness or perhaps, you know, ritualizing loss or change. So it can be very secular in some ways. And so I guess that's a, a good attempt at, at your first question. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot that can be said about chaplaincy, but chaplaincy, a lot of us understand it as a practice of spiritual health, helping to support spiritual health in the communities where we serve. And there's usually a dimension of crisis that is part of part of what we're addressing and what we're present to. So for psychedelic chaplaincy, the experience of using psychedelics in order to address, you know, trauma or perhaps sometimes physical illness or all of the reasons that people seek out psychedelic experiences, including desire to have a transcendent experience or to connect with something beyond ourselves and find our place in in the world as a as a person of the earth in a good way and all of those motivations i think are very similar to what chaplains do in our work when we're with people who are reviewing the end of their life or saying goodbye to a loved one there's this heightened sense of connection and awareness a lot of times and in crisis and sometimes difficulty psychedelic journeys can be not always be easy and expansive. Sometimes they're challenging. And so there are a lot of, a lot of our training, I think, crosses over well into psychedelic therapies. And in particular, chaplains have this capacity to help assess the spiritual and religious landscape for a person before they go into a psychedelic experience. Because what can happen is can have a very powerful existential, you know, awareness of like the presence of a being or maybe a feeling of connection and and then it becomes important to integrate that with your you know understanding of the cosmos and the your religious and spiritual commitments so people can go into some degree of existential crisis or just transition it's a very creative space and chaplains are are good at navigating those spaces as they're unfolding So that's what chaplains, I think, have to bring to the field. But at the same time, there are a lot of religious taboos and a lot of teachings within the religious traditions that encourage staying away from psychedelic medicines. And so that conversation is very much happening in the field right now and among religious leaders and professionals and chaplains. And it's it's an interesting conversation that's taking place, you know, about the right use of these medicines and plants and how we can also do that without harming the communities that they come from. Yeah, beautiful. And I love how you say that because I do have a couple questions about the tabooiness of bringing something that's, you know, religious and spiritual, which might not be okay with psychedelics, but yet in other cultures, psychedelics are the spirit, are the spiritual. So Chaplaincy has been around for a long time in various institutions, 
but this new approach, including psychedelic overlay, seems to be new to the space, to some regions, of course, because unless you like go to the Amazon where shamans have been practicing psychology in their own way for many years, it's new to more the Americas, you could say. But when this was first established and also how it was received when it arrived, so overlaying chaplaincy and psychedelics, because you just spoke about the taboo-ness, but when did they come together? How did that look like? And how do we talk about the taboos of religious thought and psychedelic thought and therapy? How did those come together for you? Oh, that's a, there's a really rich conversation there. And we're thinking of maybe someday hosting a conference um, to explore that in more depth with some of the people who are thinking deeply about, about this in the world right now. But I can say that in regard to the taboos, I think that really depending on the religious tradition, there's an interest in not doing harm and living ethically in the world. And sometimes certain spiritual traditions really shouldn't be mixed with psychedelic practice. It's important, like in, in Buddhism with the um, precepts, the precepts are there to, you know, create well-being and to create the possibility for healthy relationships in the world. And so I think there's a lot of benefit to living according to certain ethical principles or guidelines, you know, that, that are taught through your through particular religious traditions. So exploring how and when to perhaps create flexibility where, you know, someone in their ordinary life might not ordinarily like drink a lot of alcohol or want to um, use substances, you know, but there might be a reason that they go to into a psychedelic healing experience to res- because the therapies are proving so beneficial for healing trauma and for resolving certain kinds of distress. So some religious communities are saying, you know, well, it's um, not recommended that use these things recreationally, but therapeutically, you know, there's reason to sometimes, you know, if you were to go into surgery, most people would use anesthesia, for example, and even though that's a very strong mind-altering substance because of the benefit and the potential for easing suffering and preventing suffering. And so with these psychedelic therapies, I think most of the religious traditions are holding space for the possibility of benefit and really the interest in relieving suffering in the world is also an ethical commitment. So sometimes ethical commitments are in tension with each other and it just has to be worked out. You know, is it more important to provide veterans who have been through combat, you know, MDMA therapy, that may be more important than holding to a tenant that, you know, we use no substances in our tradition ever. But as for how psychedelic chaplaincy has arisen, it's arising right now in this moment. And so, you know, it's happening in a new way, in a very emergent way. So in my experience, um, I'm fortunate to be on the MAPS MDMA therapy team. And there are a handful of chaplains that are doing this kind of work. There's a few of us, I think, who are MAPS trained, and then there are some who are training for psilocybin studies, mostly in um, oncology settings. And so we are training to do this work and discovering our own definitions of how we're going about it and what we have to bring as a member of these teams of clinicians that are seeking to do this in a, in a good way based on research and also on taking wisdom from indigenous traditions really seriously and partnering in certain ways that can be of benefit, hopefully, 
Yeah. Very interesting too, because you just sort of spoke about this of how people come to the psychedelic assisted therapy as a last resort. You know, it's like this didn't work, that didn't work. So they have this like, all right, let's try this out. And I'm curious, why do people see psychedelic assisted therapy as a last resort and not a first resort? Is it because they just don't hear about it? It's not as popular. The person they're working with is like, oh, let's just keep trying this talk therapy or somatic or art therapy route. And then they're like, maybe you you do need to try some psychedelic. What do you think it is that makes it a last resort and not a first resort? Sure. Well, I think there are people all over the spectrum with that. I think some people, for, for many people, it is a last resort. And perhaps they're cautious about you know, taking such a strong plant or medically derived substance because of just the risks involved or, you know, the psychedelic therapy in, in the Western kind of current context is fairly new in a sense to the mainstream culture anyway. I mean, it's as ancient as human beings are probably to use plants and psychoactive plants to heal. But in our current context, it might be new to some people and they're just not sure what to make of it or if it's safe or, you know, because it hasn't been the psychedelic renaissance or whatever we want to call it that we're in is fairly, fairly emergent. But then there are other people who I think turn to psychedelics first and maybe too often, you know, and don't take seriously the um, support of community and the integration and the preparation needed and all of the context around psychedelics, that's important for healing as well. And people can sometimes be at risk of, you know, of harm if they're not doing it in a good way and they think the psychedelics will fix everything and that's the only only solution. So I would say people are kind of all over the place and we're finding our way with this very powerful way of addressing trauma and facilitating healing. And there's a lot of things happening right now. And some of them are really beautiful and and incredible outcomes. And some things that are happening are not so great. So we have to be in conversation about about how to do this in the best way. Yeah. And to speak to the thing that you said a little bit ago of, of, we don't want people to use drugs or medicine or plant medicine as recreational. And what I find about the labeling something as psychedelic is it's not something you want to do recreationally at levels that have therapy kind of usage because it unravels you pretty quickly. The fabric in which you thought was real dissolves away and it's very scary sometimes. And so having a sacred space and a therapeutic setting is very potent for healing. So I find it very important to understand that it's not easily abused like sugar or meat or alcohol or cigarettes. Eating mushrooms every day is going to like mess you up. It's going to do something bad. So you need to be very mindful of the fact that what medicines you're taking, how much you're taking and why you're taking it. So I'm curious, why is it important for the role of a chaplain? Like, why is it important for the role of a chaplain to be there while somebody is experiencing a psychedelic therapy session Is having a trained psychologist in a controlled setting ideal for a healing compared to like a solo setting with an intention being set? Why is it important for someone to hold space in that therapy session? Mm. Well, I think that um, psychedelic therapies at this point are very 
it's an interdisciplinary endeavor, meaning that, you know, the person sitting with someone in, let's say, like a MAPS MDMA session, usually they're there are always uh, two therapists with the protocol and one might be a physician, another a nurse, or you could have a therapist and a chaplain or two therapists. You know, usually one person is is licensed and we could talk about what that means exactly, but I think that's being sorted out, like what credentialing will be will be required over time. And chaplains have a sort of certification, which is not the same as a license, but it is a, a lengthy process that we have to go through and we're vetted and there's peer review and all of that. So that, you know, we're part of a community of accountability. But I would say that each person on that interdisciplinary team brings a particular insight and skill set. And so transpersonal, transpersonally based therapists, you know, graduates of Naropa are particularly well placed to step into those roles because of their training in um, in therapy and also in transpersonal therapies. And chaplains are well-suited because of our attentiveness to the spiritual and existential dimensions, you know, of what's happening in crisis. And that's not to say that we don't necessarily support some recreational use. That's a conversation that would be all over the place. I think with chaplains, if you were to talk with us about what we think about about legalization and all of that, but, you know, certainly in therapeutic settings, we bring this common commitment to emotional support, being able to navigate challenging existential spaces and knowledge of religion, how religion might be present in a psychedelic space. You know, someone's either embedded like childhood religion or the religious or spiritual path that they've chosen and how to integrate that so they can live well in the world and not feel alienated by a psychedelic experience. So each person brings a particular insight. Psychiatrists obviously have a lot of training and physicians and nurses. So I think ideally, you know, we there would be like communities of people that would be caring for folks in therapeutic contexts. I mean, in an even more ideal world, this would all be taking place in like contexts where connecting with the natural world, you know, is easily accessible. So you know, in settings where you can also include the trees and the earth and the water and the sky and the birds and, you know, everything that that wants to be be part of this uh, interconnected web of of support and healing can also be be accessed. And so my ideal would be like a interdisciplinary, you know, psychedelic clinic where if someone has a lot of maybe religious dynamics going on, the chaplain would maybe be coming in to consult. And if someone has more medical issues and needs to be monitored closely, then obviously physicians and nurses would be more important as members of present to that therapy session. So I think we all have something to bring and hopefully over time, we'll learn how to work together well, support each other well and and also include people that don't have professional training because that's also important, you know, the lay people that have been doing this for a long time or indigenous folks who have a lot of wisdom but don't have professional credentials, you know, to be um, accessing this kind of world. Yeah. And one thing I was thinking about, and I wrote this down while you are talking, was chaplains seem to have this holistic approach 
to whatever space you walk in, because you might walk into holding space for someone who's very Catholic or Christian. And so your visionary explanations, the things you talk about, the words you use might be different than walking into like a more Buddhist Tao Zen person having an existential moment. So I'm finding it very interesting because it does sound very interdisciplinary. It's like many disciplines are coming to meet in this space, but then you have to decide how the person needs you to show up to be able to resonate with the words and the imagery that you're using. So I'm finding that really interesting. I'm like, oh, that's very interdisciplinary. And it's very, very creative and sometimes a little messy and awkward, you know, but, and really our goal is not to be everything to everyone, but to help people access the support that they that they need, you know, or that they already may have forgotten. When you come into a hospital, sometimes it's easy to forget your sources of support because it's such an unusual environment. And in a psychedelic journey, it can also be easy to forget, you know, to call on the help of like beloved grandmother who's passed or call in, you know, spiritual support from a practice that's meaningful. And so helping people make those connections and integrate their um, sense of, of who they are in the world in it in a healthy way and not feel like they have to either leave their religion completely at the door and then just try to make sense of it afterwards on their own or that they have to come in and have any kind of religious belief in order to um, please the, the caregivers who may be religious and may want them to have some kind of a, a certain kind of experience at, Sometimes psychedelic psychonauts can be really opinionated about, you know, what they think psychedelics can do for you and what it's supposed to mean. And so, you know, really honoring the inner healing intelligence of each person and each person is so, so unique and the communities they come from are very particular usually and have, have these gifts to offer, you know, this diverse kind of human experience. And so to, to really honor honor all of that with humility is, is the goal of chaplaincy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the fact that you're using the word honoring cause, cause we're here to honor the space and the person. So whatever way that shows up for them, that's how you show up. And I love the fact that you're saying like messy cause it, it's like beautifully messy, you know, it's like you got all the colors, but you got to make the right color that shines for the person that they like. When it comes down to this type of therapy, the uh, MDMA-assisted therapy programs and the psychedelic-assisted therapy, what are the general issues and or blockages in which clients show up that they're looking to heal from? Have you noticed a commonality within the patients that come to you and or to the programs? Or is like everyone's so unique and they got all these like individualized issues going on where there's parent childhood traumas or like physical traumas or like emotional traumas or do people kind of show up with the same top five issues that's interesting to think about i don't i can't say that i am you know have deep enough experience to speak for for everyone in in a sense but as i'm learning as i'm learning you know the medicines that i've ex- have experienced mostly with would be mdma and psilocybin and with mdma i would say that it's showing particular benefit for people who have pretty serious ptsd so have had experiences let's say in combat or 
a sexual assault or something that is so traumatic that we are not able to, for some reasons that are being clarified, you know, really integrate the experience and move on. So the experience can sort of become stuck in a sense. And MDMA has a way of helping us go back to those moments and revisit them in a way that we can integrate and move through those experiences and then no longer be somatically activated, you know, with with PTSD symptoms like intrusive nightmares or being hyper alert or those kinds of things that happen when trauma isn't completely um, integrated in one's experience and somatic experience. So MDMA is particularly helpful. And, And the study is showing, you know, that the majority of people that go through the study no longer meet the criteria for PTSD at the end of the study, which is pretty remarkable. But each medicine, you know, seems to have its own intelligence and works with people in particular ways. So psilocybin has been shown to be helpful for people with um, terminal diagnoses because psilocybin can help sometimes open up this connection between ourselves and that which is larger than us. Like the cosmic nature of it all. Yeah. You know, the earth, I... For my, from my own experience, you know, I, I'll expect to still have some fear of death when the time comes, you know. I wouldn't be so bold as to say I have no fear of death. That would be overstating it. But I did experience um, this sense of just being held by the earth and being, being cared for in a way that nothing is outside of that care. And I think people with approaching the end of life or fearing death, or sometimes find really tremendous healing in, in um, psilocybin journeys. And so there's more research being done in that area to see what exactly is it, you know, about those experiences that invite that kind of healing. You know, there are studies happening all across the board, like people looking at ayahuasca for eating disorders. And it depends on the context and the way that it's offered and the support that it surrounds those medicines and can certainly, you know, not always help. And sometimes, sometimes they do harm if, if they're not done in a safe way. And so there's a lot to be discovered yet about how, which medicines can be most helpful for which kinds of human challenges in the world. But there are always, you know, other ways to come about that kind of healing as well. But this seems to be something that's really really demonstrating just relief of suffering for people that have been suffering for for years and years and have found no no relief you know in other ways yeah what i really like hearing from you is there's a personality a speciality in the spirit of the medicine in which that is being used and how mdma can facilitate a faster healing process and or a more potential healing process for ptsd people and mushrooms, uh, psilocybin has more of a earthy connection. I, I love hearing about the spirits of the medicine because I do feel like you get to meet the spirit. And also how you said, it's very unique. Not everyone's going to meet the transformative, dimensional, self-dribbling basketball aliens that Terrence McKenna talks about unless you go break the chrysanthemum and go to that space and do that heroic amount but not essentially like a therapeutic setting. It's more of a 
dissolving of ego setting. And one thing I was thinking about was, you know, we have assisted psychedelic therapies, but why the use of psychedelics in the first place? Like, why not? What is going on with the other modalities of therapies like Jungian, somatic, psychotherapy, transpersonal, or like meditative approaches? Are these not good enough? Are they not able to heal the person in which the healing needs? Or why psychedelics compared to like chatting or body movement or art therapy? Why is psychedelics more of a place for potential? That's a pretty big question as well. I would say that in my in my understanding that some of those therapies certainly do work, you know, sometimes they might take longer, like more practice, someone might have to have a stronger sense of agency. Mm, I like that, you know, to commit to let's say, let's say meditating like an hour a day for months at a time, or going to a really deep uh, meditation retreat to heal trauma, that can just be more than a person might be capable of in with the degree of suffering that they're, they're navigating. And so a medicine like MDMA can help just like a nudge, you know, just give enough support that the, um, the fear responses and the PTSD responses can just be toned down enough that it, that there's this space to to do this work, you know, and I think that other contexts, ceremonial contexts like sweat lodges and you know fasting, and there are certain certainly other ways to create these kind of um, responses in the in the brain and in the um, somatic field, and that allow for these healing opportunities to happen. And for someone who's really suffering a lot and looking for relief and just struggling with a sense of agency or really severe depression or you know it can just be helpful to show up and have a supportive therapist a supportive ideally it would be a supportive community you know around a person as they're committing to their own healing by by taking these medicines that just that just make the healing process easier for some people but again it really depends on the medicines that we're talking about because some of them can be very rigorous and can be just as challenging as a really in-depth meditation retreat or fasting for long periods of time. Or, I mean, they all have their particular kind of intelligence and, and offering that they bring to this, this healing work. So to learn, really learn about the benefits of each and to not just jump into something because it is a psychedelic, you know, but to understand the differences between these plants and medicines and like you said, the spirits that they, the spirit that they bring, you know, in, in most earth-based traditions, everything has spirit. So it's not just, you know, medicines and psychedelics that have spirit, but a computer has a spirit or, you know, a table has a spirit, like everything has, has spirit. And just to understand, um, you know, how to use kind of partner with these these medicines in a good way is really important that you wouldn't want to use, you know, like a, an airplane to try to go underwater and that's not going to work very well, you know, so you just have like rely, rely on people that know what they're doing and to clarify intentions because just one more example is some people with a lot of deep trauma might go you know, an ayahuasca ceremony or a psilocybin ther- ceremony, and there there could be, you know, potential for re-traumatization 
whereas maybe MDMA would be a better place to start for someone like that. But for another person who doesn't have a lot of childhood trauma and is maybe looking to, um, you know, make some life changes and deal with some habits and mild depression or, you know, maybe maybe those other modalities would, would be more appropriate. So it's really helpful to know, you know, to really seek seek good counsel, seek good guidance and not just be sort of all over the place trying this and that and everything without a lot of wise guidance. And if you are working with a therapist, I'm sure your therapist will help guide you towards if you are interested in a therapy psychedelic assisted session so they're there to help you so one thing you're talking about is like not everybody can just sit down for like hours and hours of meditation i actually host another podcast called look again podcast and i have three other co-hosts and these guys have a organization called holistic life foundation and they work with inner city kids and they teach them yoga and meditation and they help them just like be embodied and find themselves i guess and in some cases they talk about trauma informed so it's like kids don't want to sit down because they got some trauma so sitting down and being quiet like actually promotes the trauma in their in their head in their body so sometimes they have to do like more movement somatic based practices then to try and get them to sit down so i'm really focusing on what you're saying about like some you just have to know what works for you and in what situation you're in because the MDMA might be better than the ayahuasca. Ayahuasca will tear you up. You know, Mama Aya is, she doesn't care. She just like shows it to you. And sometimes you're ready to see it and sometimes you're not. MDMA feels like a warm hug from a lover or like a warm relationship of like, I love you and I want to heal you. And I want, you know, there's like different spirits going on with them. Mm. And they can each be difficult in their own way for sure. And, and very loving, but Right. Just to, you know, to talk with the people that are doing the therapies, like what do you think would be right for me and seeking out a therapist that has knowledge of, you know, legal settings and, you know, whether ketamine or some of the therapies that are legal in the U.S. You know, might be of benefit. And then if you do go overseas or seek out something like that or something in the U.S., you know, from like a more harm reduction perspective, it's just good to just to ask ask people who know about this what seems to to be the the best pathway for your particular goals like how you said seek the counsel you know get a diverse opinion of what could work what couldn't work you know so you're informed because we want to be informed these these are adult decisions we're making these are not oh that sounds fun i mean it can be fun but they can definitely not be fun too definitely a place for that and you, I mean, even if, if you're planning to have fun, you know, to, to get some harm reduction training, just like how to have fun in a safe way is really important, too. So it actually is fun and doesn't turn into something that's very much not fun at all. <laughs> yeah. So I I have this question. I want to ask it in a very polite way. You can just be really straightforward. Champions <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, here we go. So we as people sensationalize drugs and psychedelics and the healing potential they have and to know how something works someone you know as a therapist or a chaplain needs to understand the medicine and so i like i guess here's the question i sort of wonder when a person has like one mdma life-changing altering experience but they're like a lifelong psychologist and now they're like oh i'm gonna study this and do all my work but yet they don't have a relationship with the medicine would you see it getting 
in the way of actually doing the potential work of MDMA or psilocybin if they don't have their own practice. Because I feel like I've met a lot of upcoming psychologists and or people who talk about psychedelics, but who do not practice psychedelics. And I wonder, are we sensationalizing the the healing modalities of it? Or, you know, like, is it more potential of a person of MDMA to check in with MDMA every now and again? I appreciate your question. That's a debate that's going on in the in the field right now, I would say. You know, does someone have to have experience even with a particular medicine, let's say psilocybin, if they're going to be a guide for psilocybin journeys in like an oncology setting? And I think the challenge for some of the practitioners is that mushrooms are decriminalized in Denver, you know, and in a few other parts of the country, but in a lot of places, there's not a lot of easy access and therapists are wanting to, to serve populations and chaplains and be of benefit and not, you know, they're not really sure how to go about having their own safe experiences. So it's a little bit of a challenge for people sometimes who even want to explore, explore those pathways. And then there are some people that just think, well, it's just a medicine, just like a um, pharmaceutical medicine. And, you know, obviously you don't have to have been on anesthesia to take care of someone in the ICU. Or I do come down myself personally on the side of being committed to one's own healing, some way that has a ceremonial quality or a transformative quality, like either working with a psychedelic medicine over time, like if, you know, your goal is to become like a psilocybin therapist, then I think working with psilocybin would be important, you know, in the ways that you're able to. And there are definitely legal settings if you can afford to get to them and do some decriminalized settings. And being a um, MDMA is a little bit more difficult, though, because MDMA is harder to access. But I think, you know, working with ayahuasca definitely prepares you in some ways to work with um, psilocybin and doing deep work with psilocybin makes you more likely to probably navigate experiences with MDMA. And so sometimes people have to do their best with what is available as their training. But I would agree with you that having some commitment to deep spiritually transformative practice would be, it's just my particular take on it, would be important. So, you know, practicing in like an earth-based community where you do um some kind of like form of vision quest where you go out into the wilderness for days at a time with support or participating in like going to like a Vipassana retreat once a year, a 10 day silent retreat once a year, you know, brings you into, into that space of um, transpersonal awareness that then allows, I think for greater capacity to be a benefit, you know, to someone in a psychedelic journey. So Maybe that's a, a roundabout answer, but I do think that people working with psychedelics should have experience with them. But I also recognize that, you know, for health reasons or for spiritual and religious reasons or for access reasons might not be available. But there are a lot of ways that in our human experience that we, we've learned to put ourselves in non-ordinary states, you know, and explore those states with a lot of depth and that feeling of risk that people would feel going into a psychedelic journey. Yeah, beautiful. And, you know, you sort of spoke to this. There's like legal issues. You spend 
massive amounts of your younger years or later years and just time in general, becoming a therapist, becoming clinically trained and getting a master's, a doctorate, you know, like a very long process. And then it can be all taken away because you did something hence illegal. So there's like, you know, your license can be revoked. You can get in trouble with the law. So I do see it as like a legal potential there in some sense. So you do have to be very careful. And it that's why I'm like really interested in the laws changing into lawmakers, finding that the role of therapy and assisted psychedelic therapy is very important for people and the health of their community. So I would love to see policy changes over time. And it sounds like MAPS is doing their thing and Naropa is doing their thing. And, and it's just like really beautiful to see the climate of psychedelics and therapy come together. Yeah, in our new psychedelic therapy certificate program, our certificate in psychedelic studies is going to launch in March of this coming year. And we'll take on some of the, the questions and the, the beautiful um, conversation that you've brought brought here today about right use and what is the best preparation and who should be doing this and what are the skills needed and how do we partner with non-professional communities, you know, people that have the wisdom but don't have all the credentialing. All of those things will be part of our certificate program. And so, you know, Sarah Lewis and I are co-directors, faculty co-directors for the program, and we have a lot of excitement and optimism about what we're drawing together and the kinds of people that are coming together to teach for the certificate program. So it's a really exciting time in Naropa. And hopefully we'll have some chaplains in the certificate, you know, to explore chaplaincy more. And maybe we can have a conference someday, you know, about spirituality and religion and psychedelics. That would be really, I think, engaging. So we'll see what what's about to happen next. But it's very encouraging. Oh, man, like like hearing you talk about what might be talked about and or topics in which will be talked about in the course makes me, I'm, I'm excited for that. I want to be there. Hit me up. Like, let me know. I'll just be like a fly on the wall. I would love to hear the yays and the nays of why it's good, why it's bad, but with an academic setting, a very intelligent, academic, therapeutic setting would be really beautiful to hear that conversation. So I have one more question for you and then I'll let you go. So I'm noticing the the program in which we're speaking about, it has like an MDMA psychedelic spin to it. And when I think of MDMA, I don't necessarily think of a psychedelic. I think of a synthetic medicine in which that is like lab created. It's It's not like you find MDMA on a flower or like a root in a ground or something. So I'm curious, how does MDMA become a psychedelic? Because most psychedelics are like plant-based. And I guess LSD is kind of like a little, uh, you're kind of on the fence as well. But how does that work for you? Yeah, I would say, you know, some are plant, plant-derived. And um, and then even, even among the plants and, you know, mushrooms are not technically plants. They're fungi. And so... Different kingdom altogether. You know, and there are people that are really committed to the fungi as a whole, you know, being and others that that are creating synthetic versions of psilocybin and MDMA, as as you said, is not necessarily a plant, but it does derive from the sassafras tree. And so there is a way to honor that being as part of the um, 
the presence of the spirit of MDMA, but I think it's important, like we were talking about, to recognize that everything has spirit and that there's a lot of benefit for these medicines when they're used in the right way and at the right time. And, and we're discovering what that means as a psychedelic therapy community over time and more conversations will be had. And so I think that dichotomy is maybe not always helpful, you know, because something can have a beautiful spirit that isn't necessarily a plant or, or what we'd understand as organic, you know, some of the technologies we use to like relieve suffering in the medical world, you know, we're so grateful to have access to, and they're not necessarily plants or animals. So humans have this beautiful capacity to create things of beauty when we are doing it in a good way, you know, and in maybe in a, in a thoughtful way, in a way that has heart and perhaps a prayerful way. And so we shouldn't, I think we shouldn't underestimate the wonderful things we can create when we're seeking to relieve suffering, even though we obviously create things that are sometimes not so helpful at the same, you know, on the other hand. But I think to to see the benefit that that they're showing is is the proof that there's a place. There's a place for all of these spirits, I guess we could say, if that's what we're landing on in this conversation. Yeah. And I just had a thought where I'm like, science is psychedelic. Let's be honest, splicing molecules and genes and uh, like all the things that we have, we have a very useful tool to do good and to do some bad and to do some psychedelic type of research. So I do see science, whether, you know, the drug may be or medicine may be plant-based, organically made, and or if it's scientifically made, there is spirits and potentials for healing as long as we as people and chaplains and therapists hold a potent space for such healings. Yeah, and I think I'm say a sacred regard for what we're doing, whether that's a, doesn't have to be a religious regard, you know, but just a sense of, a sense of the sacredness of this work and that um, there's a place for joy and fun and celebration and, but in some sense, a, a, a feeling of reverence and just do these, go about this work in a good way. You know, I really appreciate this conversation with you. I love having like an adult conversation about psychedelics and I love hearing about the program at Naropa. It feels very unique and it's it's super new. And you and Sarah, are, I feel are you have such a good head on your shoulders and you like together, you both have like five or seven master degrees. So there's just like a wealth of knowledge that you have and I'm just really excited for this program to come out and to support it with the podcast. And I really appreciate your knowledge and you speaking with me and just your passion about therapy. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David. It's been wonderful to be with you and I appreciate the opportunity for conversation. On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.